Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Just a moment, uh, Brother uh, Robin. We was having some yes, technical difficulties. I apologize to the listeners for that. This software is trying to lock up, but we are on air. Please continue, Brother Robin. All right. Thank you, Scotty. I'd like to welcome to our, our show this evening, uh, Sandy Burnaby. Are you with us, Sandy? I'm here. Sandy, uh, we had also... As a guest, we had Dr. Vanelia Randall scheduled, and she just uh, texted me. She's under the weather right now, and she's in bed, okay. and we won't be having her as a guest, but we surely will have her as a follow-up in the upcoming webinar. Um, also this evening, we have as a guest uh, Anaji Mued. Are you there, Anaji? He's not there. He's not okay. there. Well, you can expect that he may be calling in um, soon. The, the subject tonight, Sandy, I'm still, I'm still like um, really trying to decompress from this Charleston issue, and yeah. uh, uh, the subject that I had talked to Dr. Randall about was going to be uh, the mental health implications in this. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, on multiple levels, uh, personal, social, uh, clinical, in the way of the SSIR factor as well, in terms mm-hmm. of Medicaid and a host of these uh, so-called uh, mass killings, implications mm-hmm. uh, and the post-traumatic stress disorder uh, uh, implications stemming from being traumatized uh, from these these events. Um, mm-hmm. sure. Meanwhile, though, you know, uh, what I was hopeful uh, to discuss uh, also in terms of institutional racism, the implications also with the uh, Psychological Association in mm-hmm. terms of uh, their association with uh, architecting the uh, torture uh, program, but also uh, maybe being exposed Exclusionary still in terms of the full scope of embracing uh, some of the the dynamics of white supremacy as a um, 
as a mental health issue. I, I, I'd right. like to get your input on that as well. Um, okay. Sandy, you've done some groundbreaking work also in organizing in the field of social work. And there was uh, some commitments coming out of a think tank, I believe, uh, this past year uh, concerning mm -hmm. race justice as a competency uh, mm -hmm. within the uh, there was a very astute observation made about the uh, social sciences and uh, the fields uh, of social science and human services in general, but the mind sciences also in the fact that there's no competency in any profession concerning Not racial justice. Not, Not one. one. Not one. And in the area of cultural competence, there's not one discipline that includes or demands that you understand dominant culture as part of that series of competencies. Not one. So you so, can learn about every culture and not understand white culture or white institutional culture. And just perpetuate the confusion, right? If you don't understand white and institutional culture, if you don't understand that it's the only culture associated with power, then you can just continue to maintain that and focus in on fixing other people. Are you there? So yes, I'm listening. I, I'm thinking. You know, it's also part of the maybe the denial factor in including mm -hmm. the malice of. Uh, uh, the, the mental illness uh, implications on the part of white supremacy, you know, by focusing on others. And there's the power dynamic because uh, not only the fields, but it, it, it lends insight into the institutions, Sandy. Are the institutions mm -hmm. uh, working from a set point of reference in framing yeah. their social justice policies, or they're just ab libbing from whatever left like, from the new sciences, or old sciences, if you will, in yeah, terms of let's, But let's not forget that, that all of the institutions are Eurocentric, right? All of the institutions were established by the people who came over from England to formulate, to form this country. So the, the English rule of law, right, all, all of those systems, you know, were just a, were a sister and brotherhood from England. So we have to just see that we're an extension of that. With a, with a slight tweaking, but um, the, everything is designed for us, the white people. Every every single system is designed for that. And um, isn't it interesting how we could define, we could say that mental illness is something other than this. I, I heard something, Robin, um, just tonight, where they're talking about this man who, you know, killed all of these people in South Carolina. And they're trying to say that it was an individual act of mental illness, that this was mental illness once again. And that's what white supremacy can do. Like white supremacy or white institutions can say that is, they, can, they have the power to define reality. They have the power to say this is what it is because they're not grounded in history, right? I mean, another way of looking at it is that this man acted at a timely moment when on YouTube, on Facebook, on TV, almost daily, we see poli white police officers using excessive force, 
killing of black men and getting away with it almost daily. And so what did he do? He basically did what he knew he, he could get away with. And we're saying that that's mental illness rather than this young man has no role models. He doesn't have any role models of what white anti-racism would look like, but what, um, you know, his culture around him, what he's seeing on, on TV, what he's seeing on the news is all re, uh, reinforcing that there is something wrong with those people. Those are the bad people. Those are the problem people. He even said, you're raping our women. You're taking over our country. You've got to go. So, I mean, we're saying that there's something wrong with this individual, but where did he get? Who shaped this message? This is a message that we hear, we see all the time from the police. There's something wrong with that individual. You are a criminal. You've got to go. So this, this whole issue of, you know, what is mental illness and where we're pointing, where we're pointing mental illness, I think that it's time that we have to take a look in the mirror, that the whole nation needs to take a look at the mirror because what's surfacing is something that is very sick and running through the veins of our country. So if there's, if there's mental illness, we have to take a look at systemic and social. And what we're seeing is what happens when we just don't care. I have a well, question. We just don't care about everybody. I have a question. Well, yes, sir. Go go ahead, Scotty. Glad you're here. Yeah, uh, Sandy. How come we do not hear um, this talk about mental illness whenever a person is accused of being um, a part of a Islamic plot to commit a terrorist act? I never hear any of these terrorist uh, suspects who are mostly non-white. Uh, referred mm-hmm. to as being mentally ill by the press or by anyone. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. They're just terrible, right? Police as well. That applies to the police as well in terms of you know psychopathic behavior in the right. extreme. I mean, standing. I mean, taking the time to get up on the hood of a vehicle to shoot into the window of unarmed people and mm-hmm. then get off. Uh, it's uh, something. There's a. There's there's an in. A discrepancy. There's a discrepancy in the application, obviously, on these labels uh, yes. in reference to mental illness. Uh, yes. And then it goes back again, Sandy, to where is this one reference point? I only understand that under civil rights, stemming from the federal government, that for housing and intent, uh, uh, um, that they have these policies set up that are supposed to be uh, the gatekeepers of the law concerning mm-hmm. civil rights. Mm-hmm. And yet, it doesn't seem to be a consistent when we were talking about having, uh, you know, a competency within the uh, the fields. What about the consistencies in, the, in the referencing these policies, not only just for mm-hmm. hiring housing, but mm-hmm. uh, in referencing third and doing, making sure that there's a calibration inside those institutions that don't mm-hmm. result in uh, disparate outcomes. And right. uh, if there's disparate outcomes, then they are bound under human rights law and convention mm-hmm. and treaty to stay mm-hmm. within those frameworks to make adjustments. There's no mm-hmm. working mechanism, it seems to me. Not only that there is an incompetency, but there's no mechanisms to to enforce, mm-hmm. educate, 
or even able enable the transition uh, once uh, there's an embracement of the white supremacist uh, analysis or the undoing racism analysis or understanding of, of racism and the definitions, which is another issue. Uh, uh, but do you have any background, Sandy, uh, not to shift, but to shift uh, the, the, on the SSIR uh, dynamic uh, in a lot of these major mass killings, there's these medications that are attached to these psycho uh, uh, antidepressants. Yeah, I um, can't speak to that. I can't speak to that. I mean, you know, we will, yeah. we will, we will want to look everywhere and not look at culture. We will want to look everywhere to not assume responsibility for the culture. You I mean, the President of the United States last night got on TV and he said, "Come on." This doesn't happen in any other developed nation. This just doesn't happen. People just don't do this in other nations that we compare ourselves to. At the first time, can you imagine the United States calling out on his own country? Something is really wrong here in the culture. Other countries that we compare ourselves to just don't behave this way. So we can say it's mental illness. We can say, and I'm sure there is mental illness, yes, but we're always looking to find the individual that we can fix, and we refuse to take a look at the culture. What shapes hate? Oh, who's come? You know, Sandy, you speak about the culture, uh, and we should not get off of groups, focus on groups. Uh, but but focus on the institutional structural racism, but all, but there's an attachment, there's an overlap there, Sandy, in the sense that uh, part of the culture of this young man w in South Carolina was that rebel flag, that whole Confederacy uh, mentality uh, 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 that goes. Uh, against really uh, the national identity of being an American citizen, they they run a different flag from their own state with its own attached history. And as his uh, own uh, college roommate said, he's been planning this for a while, and that he had a set set of beliefs about segregation, and uh, that was was where interest and belief system lie at that young age. And ironically, uh, coincidentally, uh, his father had just gave him a weapon for his birthday at age 21. Oh, uh, there you go. I mean, what, what, what shaped his hate? What shaped him? There was nothing in his culture that could redirect him. Every, everything that he was developing was mirrored and, and condoned or denied in the culture. I mean, everybody knew his thinking. There was, there, there was no... A system in place to like reel that thinking in. That thinking wasn't being challenged by anybody, right? Because it was a norm. Speaking of culture, exactly. it was a norm. It was normalized. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the and, uh, and so he really took it to the. Uh, he really took it someplace. I mean, he wants to go down in history, whatever. I mean, uh, the, the light, he, what he did was horrific, terrible. But let's face it, in one month, in one month, we can see nine people dead at the hands of police. In one month, right? There's something like 240 since the beginning of the, of the year. 
That's part of the culture. No, what no, allows we're that? We're at 500 now. We're at 500, okay? So this yeah. man did nine killings in one in one session, yet we've had 500 killings of, of people of color, black and brown people in this country. I mean, that's sick. That is a mental health issue. That is a mental health issue. So all I'm saying is, is that I'm just not willing to stay focused on one person and let us believe that, you know, if we can figure out how to get the guns out of the hands of these individuals that everything is going to be okay. I just want to say we have to go back to the culture and how, you know, structural racism, institutional racism, bias, and hatred is just permeating everywhere, percolating everywhere. And like Onaje Mood, and I'm sorry that he's not on, when we would say, this is terrible, this is terrible, he would say, well, you want to know what? It's there. And the good news is that it's surfacing so that we can see it and stop denying the poison that's killing us as a culture, as a country. So the good news is surfacing, and the bad news is what John Stewart said last night. Will we do anything about it? I don't know. As a nation, well, will we do something about this? There, you know, that's a that's a systemic, structural, institutional issue, and it's mm-hmm. also a grassroots issue. It's also a communal issue. It's also a mental health issue. It, it, it permeates all areas of people activity in our existence, and that mm-hmm. is too with environment as well. Uh, but in the meantime, though. Uh, Speaking of mental health implications, you have this transracial issue that came. Um, I'm still, uh, I, I really beat it to death for a few days this past week in terms of all the various uh, perspectives on the issues, angles, mm-hmm. views, and uh, uh, you know, I started out my whole premise and ended with the same one, which was that there's this mental health issue attached to uh, uh, internalized superiority, internal, mm-hmm. uh, to to white supremacy. And so if you have a sick system, then the products of that system are going to be sick as well. I mean, and that reminds mm-hmm. me of, you know, to paraphrase uh, 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 one of the great uh, psychoanalysts, Eric Fromm, says, how can one claim mental health in a mentally unhealthy society? Well, so, yeah. Uh, the, the issue of racism, I had hopes, uh, with the implications of the law, uh, that, uh, there would be some embracement of human rights and that we would see that all these social upheavals, starting, you know, with Occupy even here in the U.S., that, uh, a lot of these issues have human rights, uh, uh, based to them, if not, uh, and and they fit under that same umbrella, but th- there's no mm-hmm. mass human rights mm-hmm. movement in the United States. There's no yeah. human infrastructure in the United States, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. You have a few VIP uh, type of, uh, and I'm going to put them down, NGO status, UN status, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't really have a grassroots satellite offices, movements, coordinations, as infrastructure. In fact, Detroit had to be assisted by Canadian human rights groups to go for the UN concerning the water, which it still results in the stockholders getting the money and the citizens mm-hmm. uh, maintaining their level of, of poverty. 
Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, look like you might have a pair. Uh, soon uh, we'll open it up to some questions, uh, Sandy. Um, speaking of the, the human rights infrastructure, there is a social work infrastructure in the United mm-hmm. States. Yeah. And you're deeply uh, invested in that and, and then also bringing in the uh, uh, anti-racist analysis or the, right. the power analysis from the People's Institute, which has proliferated in the uh, professions of social work and human services. And uh, I'd like you to speak to that and how that possibly might be the bridge, the profession, to lead uh, in maybe uh, making that transition into a human rights lens and embracing uh, these uh, international standards within the, 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 uh, mm-hmm. the field as well. Okay, I can speak to what we're doing in New York City. You know, at the National Association of Social Workers in New York City, we are um, really focusing in on defining what social work in the city, what characterizes social work in the city. You know, cities that have, you know, that are highly diverse and have density in terms of populations, right? So we know in any, any, any city, because of uh, discrimination in housing, there will be hyper-segregated communities. And when we look into those communities. And in New York City, there are actually five communities that we can identify where every system has its way. The housing system, there's housing discrimination, there's employment discrimination, there's um, overrepresentation in criminal justice. New York City is the marijuana arrest capital of the world, you know, with hundreds of thousands of arrests every year. That translates into child welfare involvement. That, you know, stop and frisk untimely death, long-term health problems. There are, so we look at social work in a city, what you're looking at are institutional failures or multiple institutional failures where certain pockets of people have um, compounding disadvantages, right? And in those, in those communities, the oppression from all of these systems, just um, the housing, the discrimination of housing, the discrimination in employment, the healthcare system, all of these system failures um, really create a collapse of the, the fabric of the community and the community's ability to even, you know, regain its sense of who it is, who they are. And we in, at the National Association of Social Workers are saying that what we're looking at are human rights violations because they are so targeted. How can you identify certain certain segments of a community, of a city, and know exactly what's going on there. You know exactly what the schools are going to be like. You can predict the outcomes without even getting the data, what the school failures are, what the housing conditions will be, what the unemployment rates will be, what kind of illnesses are there, right, the kind of violence that are there, the arrests that are there. You could predict all of those things without even stepping foot in those communities because of the way the institutional arrangements are. So we're saying that that is, in fact, a human rights violation because it's not happening in any other city. Institution does not behave that way in any other part of the city. So we are taking a look at an equity, race, diversity, and intersectionality lens led by race because that's the way the country is constructed. And we're saying that if you're going to work in the city, you have to have an understanding of how racism 
will, you know, have its way with certain people, the same people, over and over and over again in a very consistent way. So you take that analysis and you understand that. We can go to Baltimore, we can go to Philadelphia, go to L.A., and those systems will act the same way for the same community of people across the board, bar none. And so we have now stated that we will frame all of this racial justice, this equity, education, training, and demand that the institutions start looking at themselves and the way they're acting in these communities as a human rights framework. And we're starting to develop that in our own thinking. And the only the reason why we go to human rights is because so many of these systems determine one's well-being and how you will fare in a society and how you will live and how your children will live and the chances that they have. And so you're talking about health, education, welfare, housing. I mean, without these essentials, you can barely live. So you talk about trauma. You're just talking about intersystemic trauma and re-traumatization over and over, and we're saying that that's a human rights violation and that we can begin to see it. And it isn't just about achieving racial equity, but it's about really saying that there's a sense of urgency, that there is a crisis going on, and that we have to act now. Sandy, there's, there's another important, I think, factor in this human rights or this international law, and that is the fact that it focuses on disparate outcomes, right? Yep. And yep. if you go within your institution, your organization, and there's disparate outcomes in existing in the work you do or within your organization mm -hmm. in itself, uh, there's more uh, uh, than just that word, disparate outcome. Disparate yep. outcome means impact. It means effect. It actually uh, up a red signal language-wise of a victim right. of a of right. a crime, uh, and and that's where you know the framework we don't have in terms of a mental health safety net of maybe mm -hmm. mothers, elders, uh, volunteers that have a mental health uh, network if you will, uh, that adheres to uh, this international criteria of disparate outcomes. Because there's no mechanism to address the, this law or violation of, of human rights law uh, beyond saying that you uh, uh, should change your behavior. It doesn't mm -hmm. focus at all on the victim's rights, if you will, or the disparate right. outcomes. And, you know, that yeah. functions also in its impact, does it not? Right, right, right. And, and you know, on this program we've talked about this before, that the ICER, the International Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, right? The ICER Treaty of 1965 was ratified in 1993. The United States signed it twice and made a promise that if there was discriminatory outcomes in any institution at the state, federal, and local level, that there would be remediation at the institutional level, right? So we sign that. It's not like we don't know that. How could you sign something that you don't understand? Off the heels of that right now, Sandy, uh, where there was a review in Geneva concerning uh, CAT, concerning SIRS, the other conventions 
that the U.S. is in violation of. Now, mm -hmm. they're waiting for the response as we speak in September. There's supposed to be a presidential response to the status of, and what the U.S. is going to do out of that long uh, laundry list of complaints and revelations mm -hmm. of its violations. One mm -hmm. is going to be, I think, uh, opening up the doors in such a challenge uh, to say that we will accept training in the dynamics of this law, you know, to our federal, state, and local, maybe make it a requirement. And there's no infrastructure to to address that. And if you mm -hmm. have you know, uh, sessions and workshops set up by the existing NGOs uh, or a infrastructure developed uh, of nonprofits to, to start mm -hmm. really focusing of this law without the undoing racism mm -hmm. analysis they right. do not have the understanding to frame those laws in their day-to-day -day living much less within mm -hmm. their institutional organization and so uh, I'm looking at like the foundation of white supremacy as a system it involves the mind it involves the law it involves mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, mm -hmm. So, so this international law, our hope is not just to bring shame to the violators, mm -hmm. but to show how that disparate impact is really directly attached to victims right. uh, of uh, violations of human rights. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I feel hopeful about all of the cities that are organizing around police accountability. They want to see different outcomes. So this whole, the whole language around accountability and seeing, you know, accountable outcomes has become part of the just common, uh, you know, communications in our country. And I feel hopeful about that because until people say we are no longer willing to put up with well-intended people, we want to see the violence stop. We want to see the killing stop. We want to see the failures in high schools, you know, dropouts to stop with the accountable results. That, that's what that's what I serve is about. And so no matter what happens in September, we have a framework around uh, accountable policing that we could begin to, you know, speak about. We want to see accountable results. It isn't just enough to say we're going to try this and we're going to try that. We want to know how will you measure improvement in outcomes. And I think that that's a, a, a point of reference that we could begin talking about because it's in, it's in the general language now. Because so many, like schools are looking for their accountability. Police are looking for policing and accountability. You know, people are talking about X numbers of affordable housing. So we're looking at numbers now. So I don't know. Maybe it's a time. Maybe it's a time for us to say enough is enough. Well-intended people, well-intended projects isn't good enough. We want measured outcomes. And and then talk about the ICERD. Talk about ICERD and say, this is our moment. September, you're saying that the federal government is going to respond to this in September? Right. This is our moment. You know, yeah, well, we were hopeful that we'd have Dr. Randall, who was actually there, and... Mm. Uh, uh, as very familiar with the process, or even Dr. Ansari, who also told me he'd been yes. more than happy to be a guest, but he's in uh, the West Coast this week. Mm -hmm. And so, but uh, the, with the legal implications are the mental health implications. 
in the the effect of this system ongoing uh and and how it permeates uh the the results in terms of the school to prison pipeline mm-hmm. um so sandy i think you you know we've known each other now for some years and when i first met you i i was already feeling like a lone ranger and carrying this 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 real mission in my mind in universalizing the definition I had came mm-hmm. into a wall, so to speak, in communicating with well-intended, very intelligent, well-versed people that I did not share that analysis with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. becomes, you know, and I, I host, you know, anti-racism media, so we get uh, people well-intended, I suppose, who come in with opinions as to what racism is continuously. Mm-hmm. For all the information we post on the issue of systems, structural, mm-hmm. institutional, people are still pinned on feelings and uh, uh, defining racism, which means there's a lack of this universal definition that we mm-hmm. all can take to to understand it is 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 standardized now, so mm-hmm. that it can be normalized, you know, and people's mm-hmm. understanding. Of of really this dynamic causing havoc uh, and being manipulated by the social engineers, you right. know, it's uh, very interesting. Yeah, you you always zero in on that, and it's the the most critical, the most critical aspect of undoing racism is that common definition, you know. And no matter how many times I take that workshop, and we've done it over two hundred times in the New York City area. When they when the People's Institute and the Undoing Racism workshop asks for people to define racism and you see a group of forty people just putting everything out there. It's just amazing how this country has avoided has avoided our education has avoided defining something so that it can't get resolved. And it's just amazing, you know, that we're always confused and it's left up to the individual so we can never get anywhere. And that's why I just feel like I'm so grateful to the People's Institute for that definition. But it's not just to give a definition. It takes a good hour to process people and have people think very deeply, deeply, deeply about, you know, how is how every institution is prejudiced towards a pro-white bias, you know, and then have all the institutions back it so that it has institutional agency and power. That That is just amazing. So it's race prejudice, right, pro-white, plus power, institutional power. So we can say that, but when you go through a process of experiencing and thinking deeply about it, then you understand it. You get it on a very deep level. Because race, prejudice, plus power is easy to say, and people say, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. But the journey between hearing something and actually receiving it and taking it in and experiencing it in your own life as a white person, to, to begin to understand that there's nothing I can do to shed my privilege, the privilege that I have of being white because all the institutions are prejudiced towards me and that all the all the institutions have the power to execute on my behalf. 
to, to understand that there's nothing I can do to equal the playing field except to well, organize. Sandy, Sandy there's, there's, I, I, I want to add to what you just said, which I feel is profound, and you opened up some some thoughts on my end uh, as a man of color, as an African-American descent. That being is that, um, no, there's nothing you can do, really, it seems, and yet there is, in that, from my perspective, uh, the the dynamic of, of universalizing the definition goes to the legal end. If the if the definition is universalized, it thereby will be codified into mm-hmm. law. Thereby, violators of this law, not the not the definition as inserted in the race treaty, but the law as codified internationally. Uh, that means that the U.S. could be brought to world court. In fact, that means, you know, retroactively, uh, in terms of human rights violations like crimes against humanity, that, that plays at the base of this whole, this whole, uh, slavery issue in the white supremacy mm-hmm. in this country. It really, mm-hmm. it really, it reveals the base of it. And so I think there's an inherent, uh, interest uh, to remain uh, ambiguous with definitions. Uh, Otherwise, Absolutely. if you can, if, if we've got people, you know, we've got machines probing the Mars, and yet we can't come about uh, defining our own language unless we're just being used as mm-hmm. what I call racism as part of the that warfare that's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, really, really. For me personally, in terms of uh, the definition of uh, uh, racism and universalizing this, that's what I thought was happening in Durban. I followed that closely. And when the United States and Israel walked out, it, it, I really pondered that reasoning for a long time, subsequent uh, mm-hmm. uh, to 911, which was another distraction, if you will. And, uh, yeah. Uh, we're just now getting around uh, some years later to try to address the same issues. And, uh, mm-hmm. Those are some of the uh, the gripes uh, that were expressed at the UPR in Geneva was this definition of racism. A lot of folks wanted to revisit Durban and mm-hmm. finish off what was was uh, interrupted by this, uh, you know, uh, this uh, this event nine one one. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, Sandy, in terms also in, in in your field, how how does uh, a requirement uh, develop in in the field? How how do you standardize? Right. Uh, okay. uh, the competency comes after the standardization, I would think, uh, of this. Uh, exactly. Well, in in our field, we have standards of cultural competence. And just this past month, um, here's how institutions maintain power. It was, they said that by at the end of June, we had to give feedback about the cultural competence standards for social work. Well, when did we get that announcement? The second week in June. (laughs) Like last week we get it. And the feedback is due by the end of the month. And what they didn't have there is uh, a, uh, an understanding or defining of the dominant culture, right? They had cultural competence standards, and they, they added something called cultural humility, 
which means that, you know, you should be able to, you know, not believe that your culture is the best. But there was no analysis of power, white institutional culture. And so um, what we, we were deciding, should we be responding to this? We all gave some feedback about what we felt needed to go into that. Or should we say that we're not going to put the effort into saying, defining cultural competence and adding that component and just stick to a race construct that we have to have an understanding of structural racism as distinct from cultural competence. And uh, so we did make recommendations that they add white institutional culture and the whole power dynamics. Maybe they will or maybe they won't. So our, our major effort well, is to establish Wow, that's great news, Sandy. But if they don't uh, embrace that analysis, what they'll do is be perpetuating the uh, savior industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But we're aware aware of that, and we're we're feeling that we really need to have race and culture competence and have race not be embedded under cultural competence, be hidden for it to be visible and clear. So instead of getting panicked that we couldn't get this in here, we made the recommendations, but we're still organizing around undoing racism. And so I'm okay. We're okay with that. How do you how do you profile the white liberals? Excuse my 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 profile, but when I think of social workers, I'm thinking of people coming from a liberal altruistic slant or or spirit and pursuing mm-hmm. this area. Uh, it seems to me that spirit can be channeled into a, a downright vanguard for social change. You yes. know, if be some standardizing and opening up with this analysis is is very vital, very important. Yeah. Uh, well, because hmm. I, I can't, I have a hard time relating to people if they don't have that analysis on a deeper level. Yeah. Sandy, I, I'm well, sure it's proof so- for you too. Those workers are well-intended people, but don't forget the whole profession was um, oriented towards fix them, fix those people. Those people need help. Those people need fixing. And that's where the problem is, is that social work is white supremacist. It's the same institution, uh, you know, schools of education, all of the professions are the same, that we don't have the capacity to turn the mirror inward and to look at how the institutions of education has uh, perpetuated white supremacy. So that's what this whole um, organizing is within our profession. We want, we want social workers to have the capacity to turn the mirror inward and look at the institutions that we work in and to see that we as soldiers are very often the foot soldiers of racism. And I'll give you an example. We have a committee now called Social Workers Against Criminalization. And the, the goal of that is for social workers to look at they are criminalizing people in child welfare. Social workers fill child welfare, and those are the people that go and remove the children. In the hospitals, it's the social worker who fills out the paper that, that um, you know, abuse has taken place. And when we see the racial disproportionate outcomes of all of these systems, child welfare systems, you get to see how social workers who are blinded, who don't see, who are colorblind, are the people who are turning people in, take, removing the children, right, who are doing the drug treatment with all of the marijuana arrests. So 
we're taking a look at how the profession itself is a gatekeeper towards criminalizing people. Sandy, I have a story, too, is that one of the posters, the gentleman that responds on our page, runs a couple admin pages of uh, alternative news, um, took issue with uh, Dolus' uh, uh, continuous posting on this transracial issue. Then he began, uh, I felt a need to give me his uh, his uh, credentials in that he... Uh, was uh, in in graduate school, political science, and, and planned to teach school in the inner city, and that he that he felt you know very aware of racism and the needs of the people of the inner city. So I I vetted him very quickly and found out he didn't have not one white friend in his Facebook circles. Secondly, uh, he did not want to embrace or address the issues of the power analysis and the definition of racism. He ran off his own intellect and he ran off his own opinions, but his target goal and aspiration as a professional was to enter into the inner city school system to teach the... the, the, the. I asked him, why don't he just teach the people from his own community and make that transition and networking there, and he mm-hmm. might have more impact for the good in his own community, but I don't understand how he saw it as a career goal to make uh, uh, a living off of poor people or mm-hmm. disadvantaged and he didn't have a clue about this analysis in terms of being an ally to a community is one thing, but making a living off the community just mm-hmm. sets him exactly. up as, like, you know, mm-hmm. he's a Korean bodega owner on one corner and whatever other uh, check cashing or whatever exploitive, um, you know, businesses are there exploiting the inner city community. And he kept using that yeah. word inner city, which is another issue I had about using code. But, yeah, some people aspire with the great intent, but they're doing damage right off the top, Sandy, if without that now, analysis. This was, now, this was a white man that you're talking about? It was, yes, with no black friends, no persons of color. In his the, the, the arrogance and, the, and just this is how white supremacy works. He can move into any community that he wants. Can you imagine that? He can move in and out of any community and be the savior and be friends, right? But there's no reciprocity. And bring the police with him in the justification process. Exactly, exactly. These are dangerous, dangerous white people. And it's for people like myself and others who are anti-racist to really reach out, reach out to people who may be well-intended, maybe not, we don't know, but to get some clarity there. Well, wow. in keeping with your last statement, Sandy, uh, there's two questions uh, or two points to be made. One is uh, a national plan. A national mm-hmm. plan referencing these human rights violations and a, a national plan as relates to CERD is boiling. Uh, you know, under, we were part of that CERD task force, remember? And uh, one of the, re- the expectations maybe coming out of this review was a national plan. That means they're controlling the federal government, it's controlling the narrative, and they, and they don't have the analysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. the, and so it's problematic. It's like, you know, they're basically, uh, 
usurping uh, and undermining the grassroots movement and then try to reform and regulate it uh, without that analysis, Sandy, you know, mm -hmm. and um, that mm -hmm. scares me. So, go ahead. Mm -hmm. It should scare you, and that's why we, we never stop organizing, right? We never, ever stop organizing. And all the national plan, though, was do white folks have a national plan? I mean, the people, I, I, I have a great uh, respect for anti-racist alliance for one group. You have, you know, an expansive uh, a knowledge bank there uh, on whiteness. But also you have European descent, which I, uh, you know, I, I love mm -hmm. that. And, uh, and uh, that, the premise of, of, uh, European descent, D-I-S-S-E-N-T, is, is always, you know, sparked my imagination in that mm -hmm. uh, there needs to be a national plan that white folks need to push on their own agenda that, you know, um, in terms of racial justice. And, and what, I mean, it's almost like being tired of being sick, you know, yeah. uh, being tired of being responsible for the monstrosities that are that are going on and not wanting to be responsible intergenerational for slavery but neither want to be responsible for disparate outcomes so mm -hmm. the, where is the national plan or is it filtered mm -hmm. through a field of study or one region in the field of study or through the mm -hmm. curriculum uh, industry uh, and so there's a national plan I think that is going to be coming and I'm curious to observe how that plays out vis-a-vis -vis the 10-year decade, which there's no seemingly representation in the U.S. side. And by the way, Sandy, we are going to have Michael McEatrain here uh, coming up soon from Sweden, who's quite yeah. active in organizing across Europe for the diaspora of African descent. Mm -hmm. Preparing mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. They're also embracing and confronting, obviously, racial justice. So we don't really uh, see the world, uh, uh, the geopolitical, uh, geo-racial world, but Sweden has some major bombings and some racial issues going on again uh, in the last month uh, that made headlines across Europe. And we seem to be out of touch here in the U.S. We don't have a human mm -hmm. rights infrastructure. Uh, the civil mm -hmm. rights uh, is a is a mood issue for me in terms of that. Until they, I, I'm thinking, how do they make this transition and bridge the industry of civil rights into human rights? Yeah. Uh, and, when, is, you know, when is Michael arriving? Uh, he's not coming. Arrive? He's not coming. He's uh, uh, not immediately. He's really involved in. Uh, uh, he was on his way to France. Uh, last week, I'm saying having him on, on the show. He has to stay up quite late to have him in here on race treaty to mm -hmm. speak to uh, the issues going on in Europe as it relates to CERD and the race treaty yeah. there, and his efforts with the reparations movement, uh, the Caribbean reparations movement in Europe also is making okay. head ground involved there as well. Right. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I just want to say, don't forget what Malcolm X told us to do. He said that what was going on here was a human rights violation and that we should really align with the rest of the diaspora around the world in, in um, bringing this country to the world court. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something if we were finally called? I mean, who would be strong enough to do such a thing or even attempt to do such a thing? But it would be an aligning with other countries 
to say that this is also we've exported this elsewhere, like a, like a, a global movement. Fanny, that's where our leaders need to migrate. I'm looking for, you know, not civil rights leaders. I'm looking for human rights leaders. We have yeah. none of great, great rapport in terms of the media's attention and the work they do because most of our thoughts concerning human rights is how we can investigate other countries' violations. Okay. But currently, uh, you know, there's some major human rights violations going on as well, as we know, and no infrastructure to reveal it. So... Mm -hmm. A lot of work to be done. Um, uh, in terms of the, also the mental health implications, uh, obviously the people of Charleston are traumatized, but there's mm -hmm. a social, racial traumatizing going on here also All because over the, uh, uh, the implications All over the are almost esoteric in the fact that this is uh, Denmark Vesey's, the one of the oldest churches in the South. Uh, the timing uh, and referencing the, the 150 years, uh, the Father's Day weekend, it's just, it mm -hmm. seems random uh, as the stars align, uh, yeah. how this impacts. And then, you know, these guys, we've got these, these race war uh, uh, agendas that people feel like, you know, more animosity is being built up. And this was kind of one of my major motivations of being involved with Occupy was trying to make them understand, as you well know, that they yes. need the racism done, doing racism training, so they yes, have an yeah. There can be no mass movement based on join us, we're the 99%, when they don't mm -hmm. include people of color or First Nations or Latino uh, or Spanish folks mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the table, at the planning table even. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you know, I'm also watching, you know, some of the support from Occupy is overlapped into, uh, as, in terms of mutual aid and, and technical assistance to the Black Lives Matter. But mm -hmm. that analysis is is lacking in social movements. Uh, uh, human rights is lacking as the universal mm -hmm. flag that we should be making our movements under, in my opinion, I should say. Mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. because my last message of all stems in the world courts and how to get there. Uh, uh, Sorry is one of the few who's setting up with his human rights monitor. He's setting up a mechanism by which to get uh, to the universal or the uh, international courts. Uh, yeah, because price is important. We're born with it. Uh, and we mm -hmm. have to actually pay for what we're born with innately. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the change for our privilege called civil rights that really is not working for us. Uh, That's right. That's uh, right. You know, Right. Voting rights. Well, on a daily basis, Robin, with great velocity, the story of racism is surfacing with the, with the videos, you know, the videos and the news. And, and the, it's just a, a story a day. And it's surfacing in a real blatant way. And as long as we keep organizing and have people like you who give voice to it, and you have anti-racism TV, anti-race treaty radio, and there's more and more people writing about it. I mean, you, you can't even keep up with all of the media and the writing that is going on. Even the woman, you know, the NAACP incident. Every day there's something going on, and I just feel like we're building momentum, 
There are so many coalitions that meet. I mean, right now, between 9 and 10, there was the Ferguson call. It's an 800 call, and people from all over the country call in, and they give updates on their organizing. So as tragic as all of this is, I feel very, very hopeful because the stories are being told, and it's becoming visible. And like Onaje said, you know, the poison is surfacing again. And now is the time to begin to capture those stories and to mobilize the efforts, and I think we're doing that. And this is part of it. And having Michael, you know, do that kind of like international website, and, and Dr. Ansari, you know, speaking out and doing trainings on reporting and witnessing. Um, let's just keep galvanizing and keep organizing and staying together. And the Internet has been an incredible tool to keep us together. You know, whether it's Facebook or it's the hashtagging, and I just, I don't know, I'm feeling as down as um, I feel today about what's happened. I also feel hopeful because people are no longer able to deny it. I think we're breaking through some of the colorblindness. <clears throat> Sandy, I have to ask you a question. It's kind of personal in the yeah. sense that... Uh, um, Outside of where you live is a is a grave site. Is it not of uh, a renowned uh, historical figure? Yes, Miles Gamex is back there. Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz. Yeah. So you know, I've always thought of you. I actually simultaneously think of that uh, a physical setting in which you reside and the spirit of these folks residing also with you in your work and your yeah. understanding of this need. Uh, that's yeah. kind of an insider uh, <laughs> a point. But, uh, yeah, so the human rights was, you know, people kind of cherry-pick statements, and, you know, it's, it's become, um, as you know, liberals quoting Malcolm X. But really, when you understand uh, uh, Malcolm X, you understand he was transformative in his <laughs> And in his last phase, if you focus in on who this man was, where his mind and spirit was when they cut him from the living, he was profoundly uh, uh, focused on entering the international stage. That's right. We have an audience. We are in union with the vast majority of the world, which is actually of color. And so we haven't pushed our leadership and our voice to the international arena, in my okay. opinion. And okay. we have a lot of trailblazers and a lot of warriors and soldiers and foot soldiers that have appeared and have sacrificed to appear and have committed their lives to this issue of uh, right. white supremacy, racial justice, including yourself. I understand also you were awarded recently, uh, Sandy, and I wasn't able to congratulate you. Uh, what was you. that about? Thank you. Oh, you know, the, the, the last award, well, there were two of them, actually. The Anti-Racist Alliance received an award for organizing we're doing, you know, in the New York City metro area. And Ron Chisholm came. And what was so beautiful about that is that it was the Martin Luther King Institute for Nonviolence who gave us that award. And there were other awards being given that night. And you know how you can live in a community and you're all doing great work, but you're siloed? Well, Ron Chisholm and all of his skill and love 
brought all of the awardees together and talked about how we all need to organize together and not see it like you're doing policing, you're doing housing. You know, that we're all doing, we're all undoing racism. Then he spent some time speaking to all of the men, the men of color, in the room afterwards for a good hour, and he started bringing everybody together. So that came to an award where three distinct groups were getting an award. And at the end of the night, we were one community doing That's the same dynamic. work. That's Ron Chisholm. That's dynamic, Sandy. Yes, and that's, that's, that's at the end of the day is what it's all about. You know, yeah. it's 10 o'clock, Robin. I know. I'm going to let you go, Sandy, and I appreciate you joining us. Uh, and I don't know what happened to Najee, and I understand, and, and uh, uh, keeping in prayer, Dr. Randall, that her health uh, uh, yeah. is better. Uh, thank you, Scotty. Reed, yes, thank you, Scotty. A great, gracious host. Sandy, I'll talk to you soon. Yes, thank you again. Thank you again for inviting me on this call, okay? Take thank care. you, audience, for joining us. Peace out. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.